All right, everybody, welcome to another edition of Good from Bad Science. Uh, we know about models by now, I think, uh, or at least uh, something about models, at least some of the basics. A model, which I also say is a theory, in which I will uh, just take for granted right now, but uh, I, will, I can prove this uh, in, in a later podcast. Uh, a model can be made about any contingent thing, any measurable thing in the universe, any uh, aspect of physical reality. That's what I mean by contingent. Say, you know, uh, anything, you, you, you know, the level of your 401k, uh, the fate of a currency, uh, the weather, or the growth of academics studying so-called climate change. Now, because the model uh, or, or the models we're thinking about are of something contingent, uh, also known as an observable, uh, and because of things like uh, limitations in data and even more important, uh, m much more important is limitations in thought. We are but poor fractured creatures after all. There will always be uh, or should always be uncertainty in models predictions. Uh, this is, of course, uh, in no way a limitation or a fault. It's just the nature of models. Uh, but what kind of mistake would we be making if we took the output of a model and input it into another model stripped of all uncertainty. All right, let me repeat that just to make sure you got it. What kind of mistake would, be, would we be making if we took the output of our model, our first model here, and we input it into another model, a second model, stripped of all uncertainty? And what kind of mistake... Uh, would the owner of that second model be making if he supplied his output also stripped of uncertainty to the creator of a third model? It's it's a trick question. It's a dumb mistake, but it's a it's a, it's an all too common mistake. Now we I've discussed this before uh, under the term uh, multiplication of uncertainties. And I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, but maybe a better title is Forgotten Uncertainties. The idea is very simple. Let's suppose we just have a, a chain of models here. This is not uncommon, chains of models. Model A says the chance of temperatures exceeding some, oh, high critical value at some place and time and so forth is, say, being generous, 50%. All right, so model A says the chance that temperature is going to exceed some critical value is 50%. And that's probably generous because, you know, temperatures are often not that high and not that critical, uh, you know, for most, most places, most things. So that's a pretty generous probability forecast. Now, model B says the chance of some high temperature dependent thing, uh, like the production of, of a certain crop falling, is 60%. So uh, in other words, this crop is going to fall if the temperature exceeds some value. And the probability, if the temperature does exceed that value, the crop falls is 60%. Okay, model C says the chance that the gross domestic product falls by some amount if the crop is low is 80%. So we have a chain here. We have a first of a chain of a model of uh, temperature. We have second, a model of uh, crop production, which relies on temperature. And then finally, we have a model of GDP, which relies on crop production. Now, of course, it would be a tremendous blunder to announce 80% chance that the GDP fa falls by six basis points when climate change hits. 
because the uncertainties have not been multiplied like they should have been. In our example, the proper phrase would be something like this. The chance the temperature exceeds some value and the crop production falls and the GDP falls is 25% because the 50% times 60% times 80% is about 25%. You can just trust me on the math or work it out yourself. So what seemed almost certain with one headline has, with a proper accounting for the full uncertainty, dropped to something not especially likely. It's certainly not as worrisome as uh, the original 80% headline. Now, I was very generous with these probabilities. I wanted to make the best case uh, for those who tout climate change, so-called climate change. In real models, the complexity, of course, is much greater. The string of models and assumptions, and assumptions are models, uh, is much longer. And the resultant full uncertainty must necessarily be much greater. So great is the resultant uncertainty uh, from a string of these real life models that it's difficult, it, it should be difficult to get worked up about any announcement of doom. So let's keep in mind when we uh, look at this, uh, an example of this in this peer reviewed paper, Climate Change Vulnerability and Currency Returns. Uh, the authors aren't important, but it's in, it's in a peer reviewed journal, financial uh, analyst journal. Uh, you can look this up, it's readily available on the web. The authors begin by stating, uh, this, is, this, is a, uh, this is something very curious here. The authors begin their paper by stating only bad things that can happen uh, with so-called climate change. The good uh, is forgotten or never considered. Uh, on the other hand, you know, in sympathy with these authors, try to get a paper published that says, look at all the terrific things climate change will bring us. Uh, I won't wait up for you if you if you try that. Now, I, I've been putting in sort of verbal, and I hope you can hear it, scare quotes around climate change to indicate that I haven't any clear idea what is meant by that phrase. And neither do the authors or or, or most people or, or indeed anybody really. Uh, to them, as to almost anybody, it's a scare phrase or a scare word, a bad thing. It's It's something to be avoided precision in the term is not only missing, but unwanted. And if we don't have precision, uh, we don't have science, or at least we have something that's uh, more akin to lousy science. We need to explain exactly what we mean. Now, in the paper itself, in the paper itself, in the analysis, uh, which is, of course, uh, looking at currency uh, uh, vulnerability and currency returns and uh, their vulner vulnerability to climate change, so-called, they use data from uh, something called the Notre Dame Global Ad Adaptation Initiative, the ND Gain Index, that measures a country's vulnerability to climate change. Now, this is, of course, a model. Now, I'm not going to prove it here. It, it's obviously a model, but it's an over-certain one. And, and, and the reason it's an over-certain one is because they issue these numbers, uh, vulnerability numbers, uh, single-digit numbers per country, per country, single-digit numbers. Our hunger, this is not the author's fault. Uh, I'm not blaming authors for this because this is, this is a fault of uh, a modern uh, uh, culture, in, you know, that is that has been basted in scientism for so long that our hunger for these over certain single number summaries of vast complexities uh, it can never be sated. 
Now, according to the ND gain index, Norway, at least at the time uh, I looked it up, uh, is given a 75.4 index of vulnerability. 75.4, not 75.3. No, not 75.5, 75.4. Just to give you uh, a, a benchmark, Denmark is 71.0. Now, this single, precise, supposedly, well, it is a precise number. There's no uncertainty in that number. 75.4 is 75.4. It's as precise as you can get. This single number uh, summarizes a country's so-called climate change capability in terms of, now, this is according to the Notre Dame model itself. This single number summarizes an entire country's capability in terms of exposure, number one, number two, sensitivity, number three, uh, adaptive capacity, number four, economic readiness, number five, governance readiness, and finally, number six, social readiness. The first three uh, of these, the authors uh, in, uh, consider themselves, this is the vulnerability aspect of it, the first three, exposure, sensitivity, ad adaptive capacity. Those themselves consider six things, uh, including food, water, health, ecosystem services, human habitat, and infrastructure. One... <laughs> You're so used to this, you don't think it's funny. I, I, I've, I, I've been thinking about this a long time. I think it's hilarious. One perfectly single, precise number to summarize an entire culture and what it might do in an unknown future once climate change hits. What can that number mean? Uh, the question to me is rhetorical. It can't mean anything. The index should be laughed at. Uh, be sure, though. Be sure, just get this, even if you're not laughing yet, be sure that you see that this first hidden model that we don't talk about, we have this uh, we have this model of Notre Dame's model, that's already a model, but there's a hidden model, a tacit model, and that is, of course, of, quote, climate change itself. We nowhere see it. Uh, it's somehow taken as certain by both Notre Dame and our authors of this paper. All right. Now, our authors, of course, again, use this time-changing they do this on a yearly basis, this ND gain index, uh, or you know, a form of them, to study currencies. Basically, what they do uh, is they put the form, uh, one of those in, ND gain indexes, a, a portion of them, into a third model, a regression or a series of regression with currencies from around the world uh, separated into G10 and non-G10 countries. All right. So they have the climate change model. We got the model, the ND gain model. And then they have a third model of uh, currency as it relates to this time-changing ND gain index. And of course, currencies also change over time. Now, here's what they do. They then announce what happened to the parameters of their regression model. As if the parameters were the observables themselves. What they, when what they should have done is uh, integrate out, in, in, in statistics speak, the uncertainty in the parameters. And they should have stated the results in terms of uncertainty in the observables, i.e. the currencies. Now, in their favor, too, the authors uh, don't know better, I don't think. Most researchers commit this error. And when I say most, I mean almost every. If <laughs> Rare to find ones that don't. Uh, because they don't know better. 
uh, because, but it's a huge error. I wonder, it's just a huge error because the certainty and the parameters of any model are always necessarily larger than we should have in the observable because the observable is only related to those parameters. And if we have uncertainty in the parameters, that uncertainty must translate into the observable, which must be larger. Uh, it means, what, what this means, if you can't follow this, and I'm going to have a whole separate podcast on that, if you, or, or maybe you've already listened to it, it means that the authors are far too certain. And that's not even considering what we started out talking about, the multiplication of uncertainties, which appears nowhere in their paper. Even if they put their model in terms of the observables, which they did not, we still have to consider at least the, the so-called climate change models and all the models and assumptions that go into the ND gain indexes and also the regression model. Plus, uh, I'm leaving out a lot of details about their models' complexities. They do several models. Uh, the Notre Dame index vulnerability, all right, is a function of, this is in their models, log GDP per capita, price level, cumulative current account, currency account, debt to GDP, unemployment, industrial production, retail sales. Now, some of these are known, of course, but some of them, some of these uh, measures they put into their model are uncertain in themselves. But they're used in the model as if they're un, if, as if they are a certainty. So we really have a string of four models here or more. Yet they conclude things like this, triumphantly conclude things like this. We find trends in climate vulnerability predict currency returns. <sighs> there's no indication in their conclusion or their discussion that they're anything but certain about it, uh, which is an impossibility. Now, just to throw the authors some break, if there's any predictive value to their model, it comes not from climate change certainty, but because, of course, currency uh, changes in time are modestly predictable. Everybody knows this, uh, such as knowing whether you're from a G10 or non-G10 country. In essence, what they've really done here is rediscovered time series modeling. All right. Uh, and of course, time series models say nothing about cause, uh, though sometimes people think they do. That's a story for another day. Uh, but it's the same reason a model where it's, I'm, I often share this, this is from a, a website called Spurious Correlations. It is a model of the amount spent in science funding in the United States year by year, which is of course increasing, by the number of people who are strangled to death. <laughs> yeah, this is, I'm not, it's an absurd thing. I shouldn't be laughing. The number of people who are strangled to death in their bedrooms by their bedsheets, not, not murdered, just they get themselves wrapped up and they strangle themselves to death. The correlation between these two time series is enormously high. I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's 0.99 something. And if you model them, you get a p-value weirder than any sociologist would ever see. But the model still makes good predictions. And why? Not because there's any causative link between the number of people who strangle themselves and the, and the uh, amount of funding uh, spent on science. It's because population is increasing and therefore the number of people who strangle themselves is increasing and the amount of funding in science is increasing. So just because we have two things that are increasing for completely separate causative reasons, uh, we have a model that makes decent predictions, but of course is preposterous. 
So the same thing kind of applies here. All right, that's it for now. Once again, thanks for listening.